did the Baba Khawf, which from that collected edition of Hadith by Imam al Nawawi, Interestingly and appropriately, in this chapter today, which is Baba Hajjah, the chapter on Khawf, this chapter is exactly, at least in the current edition's pagination, twice as long as the chapter on Baba Khawf. I suspect the reason Imam al-Nawwi did this is actually he did feel, and he had found, and he would be accurate in doing so, that the ayat in Qur'an and the hadith of the Prophet about a person having hope in the mercy of Allah and hope in the forgiveness of Allah they are much more than the verses in Qur'an and the hadith that talk about having fear in the might and the punishment of Allah and also, they most appropriately put khawf first and vajah second. One reason is that a person should have true fear. And that true fear is the shart to have true hope. You can't truly hope for the mercy and forgiveness of Allah unless you did truly fear Him. Because if you didn't truly fear Him, that means you may have committed some sin fearlessly. And when you commit sin fearlessly, then you are hopeless of His mercy and forgiveness. Second reason can be that earlier on in a person's life, or in, even in the earlier stage of the religious and spiritual development, it's more important to have hope and have to have fear of Allah SWT. And later on, as you're going to see actually in some very specific hadith that he will quote, later on in a person's life, ghalib, raja should be ghalib, hope should be dominant on a person's heart. And in this chapter, Imam Nawawi actually is going to suffice himself with quoting only a few ayat of Qur'an al-Karim. That was one other difference in that chapter on hope and fear, there were many more ayat of Qur'an. So the first ayat of Qur'an, yes, okay, I have it, I'll just make it on the screen. Those of you who have been with us for some time know that this is one of our more favorite ayat of Quran and we've mentioned and explained this in many different bayanat. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses, whenever Allah ta'ala uses this mechanism قُلْ Quran. That actually means that Allah Ta'ala is choosing Sayyidina Rasulullah to personally deliver the message. Quran is all the message of Allah SWT. And all of Quran is obviously going to be initially recited and professed on the blessed tongue of Nabiya Kareem Wasallam. But this word Qul is that Allah Ta'ala is asking the Prophet I want you to more intimately, gently proclaim this revelation that I'm sending to you, which is what? And proclaim on behalf of Allah SWT that Allah Ta'ala is saying that, O oh, beloved servants of mine, those of you who ask for Allah and say Him that you have wronged your own selves. And here, Isaf Allah Nafs in our deen means sin. That you did zulm on your own self. You did Israf on your own self. That do not ever, ever despair of the mercy of Allah SWT. Never think that you have sinned so much that you are beyond the reach of His mercy. Never think that you are I'm unworthy of Allah's mercy. Some you know, people think like that, that I know Allah is all merciful, but I'm not worthy of His mercy. I'm not eligible of His mercy. Never think like that. In Allah, Indeed, Allah will forgive. Al-Dhanub means all sins. 
Like when we did Alhamdu, Al meant all praises are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Dhanubu, Allah ta'ala forgives all sins, Jami'ah entirely. Innahu, for indeed He, Hul Ghafur Rahim, He Allah is all forgiving and all merciful. So here the meaning that of hope is that hope in Allah Ta'ala's forgiveness despite one's sins, in the presence of one's sins. Then the second verse Imam Nawawi quotes pertains to punishment. That can we ever punish anyone? Except now kufur can mean extremely ungrateful ones. Kufur can also mean extreme disbelievers, intense disbelievers. So it means that as long as a person is not a kafir in any sense of the word, number one, that they don't deny the existence of Allah Ta'ala, and number two, they don't deny Allah Ta'ala's bounties and blessings, and they don't do it extremely, then they can hope on the basis of this verse that they will not get the punishment of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And in the third verse, Inna then turned away and spurned the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then another statement which is very important because a lot of people I've observed in Pakistan at least think that this is only a hadith or it's an Arabic saying, is actually a verse of Quran. That my mercy encompasses every single thing. There's another in the hadith that's coming later in the Bab where Allah has inscribed on his arsh that his mercy is the halib on his anger, on his wrath. In this verse of Quran, وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ That my mercy encompasses each and every single thing. Right. So obviously we are shaykhun min al-ashya, we are just a thing from the things of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, means we fall under the canopy and the shade of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then Imam Nawawi will bring his first hadith, and many of the hadith he will bring early, and even a couple later in the chapter, are talking about the mercy and forgiveness for a person who believes in kalima la ilaha illallah. And then the commentaries on all these hadiths, and I will just comment on this aspect in the beginning, is that the entrance to Jannah means that a person will not live in the fire of Jannah forever. That ultimately, penultimately, inevitably, that as long as a person believed in Iman and didn't have shirk or kufr in their heart, they will end up in Jannah. But, and Imam Nawawi has not brought those hadith in this chapter, but those hadith are also in the collections of Bukhari and Muslim from which Imam Nawawi takes, there are many hadith, sahih hadith, that talk about believers being punished in Jannah. That's not anything to do with their Iman, it has to do with their Ahmad. That they had good imam, but they had bad amal. And they didn't make tawbah of those bad amal before they passed away. So the purification for those bad amal, meaning those sins, in akhirah will be the fire of Jannah. And once the Jahannam purifies them of its sins, then on the basis of their imam, they will be eligible to enter into Jannah. Alright? Sayyidina Abad ibn Samad bin Al-Nari said, one who testifies that there is none worthy of worship except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that He and He Allah is one and has no partner. Right? And that Nabi Isa is the slave and his messenger. And that Nabi Isa is the slave and his messenger. And he is the word of Allah. 
That is what word has been understood by Ulama Muhammad bin Rasul. Number one is that Nabi Isa birth was based on Qul Fayyakul. He was born under the power of the word, the kalma, the commandment of Mustafa, as opposed to the normal process of conception, etc. Second meaning is that he brought with him the word of Allah Subhanahu subsequently spoke when he was just a baby to defend the uh, honor of his noble mother, Maryam Sayyidina Maryam Well, so that's it. We testify in the Prophet of Muhammad and the Prophet of Nabi Isa <coughs> word of Allah sponsor Al-Qaha in Al-Maryam that he placed inside uh, Sayyidina Maryam and then Ruhum Minhu and then Nabi Islam is a Ruh from Allah Subhanahu This is a term that comes in Quran as well and in Hadith that Nabi Islam was Ruhullah, right? Now this may be the basis on which the Christian concept of Trinity, this is the source of how they went astray because they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Now, Ruh, in English, if you translate that, means spirit. And no doubt, the Ruh inside Nabi Isa was a Ruh that was infused in him by Allah Taala. but that is true for each and every one of my and your Ruh as well. It doesn't mean that he is one-third Allah Taala, or he represents one-third of the Trinity of Allah Taala. There's no divinity. It was a human Ruh that was placed inside Nabi Islam, just like there's a human rule placed inside each and every one of us. But still, it's a very interesting hadith, especially in Pakistan, it happens rarely, but for the English-speaking listeners abroad, those who do interfaith dialogue with Christians, it's a very interesting hadith because it suggests that for our salvation as Muslims, you have to believe in Nabi Islam. That's something we all know, but it's a very good hadith to make it very clear to them. And it also gives opportunity to discuss these issues about him being a Nabi and a Kalima and a Ruh, but without being, uh, having any godness or divinity ascribed to him. So, Baram, interesting in this hadith that these are the three things that are mentioned. And you'll find in other days different lists of things that a person must have to grant an admission to Jannah. Here are three things, Tawheed, Risal of the Prophet Muhammad and Risal of Nabi Sallallahu If a person believes in these three things, then the Prophet continued that paradise, uh, and the fourth thing you have to believe, and that paradise and the hellfire are true. Then Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala enters such a person into Jannah, no matter what their deeds might be. Alright. Now, what does this mean? This idea is on the surface of it, was suggested, okay, even if he has sins, he will be entered into Jannah. Right? This is one very important thing in Hadith scholarship, that you have to understand every Hadith in light of the other Hadith. And it's only when you take all the Hadith together that they portray the complete picture. Right? If there weren't those Hadith that talk about Muslims who had all of these four conditions, that they believed in the oneness of Allah, Allah Prophet, Prophet, Nabi, Islam, Jannat, and Jahannam, but they have bad deeds. So what does it mean? Those hadiths say that they have bad deeds, they will go to Jahannam as a purification for their bad deeds. This one says that they will enter into Jahannam no matter what their deeds are. So this is a field in Hadith scholarship which is called Tadbiq. To harmonize between single reports to create a holistic, broader understanding. And the understanding is simply that, that yes, that no matter what their deeds are, they will be entered into Jannah if they had no sins, or Allah Ta'ala chooses out of His mercy on that day of judgment, out of His glance of mercy to forgive them, they will go straight to Jannah. 
And if they had sins, if they hadn't made tawbah and they were not able, for whatever reason, to trust Allah, Allah's special gaze of mercy on them, then they will have to go to Jahannam first, and then they will enter into Jannah. Alright. But the condition, ultimate condition of being able to enter Jannah is that of Imam. Again, this is not able to downplay the importance of Amal, uh, but the reality theologically is obviously Iman is ultimately the basis on which a person will go into Jannah. Next hadith. This hadith now is a hadith that many of you would have known. This is another way of giving hope. If hope and forgiveness came in the first hadith, that okay, as long as you're a mu'min. Obviously, if you're listening to a hadith, you're a mu'min. You, have, you believe in these four things, right? And so it gives us good hope that we go into Jannah. The second is actually pertaining to A'mal. And that how much Allah has tried to stack the scales in our favor on the Day of Judgment. So Sayyidina Rasulullah said that a person who does a single good deed shall receive the reward ten times the life thereof. Or that Allah Taala says that I will give him more. This is Hadith known as Hadith Qudsi. Prophet said that Allah Ta'ala said alright, so ten times or more, and when Allah Ta'ala wants to give more, there's no limit on Allah Ta'ala's more, it could be billions trillions, infinite amounts one, on the other hand it means a person who commits a single evil deed, shall be punished the like thereof they will only get one evil deed, or Allah Ta'ala says, I will forgive him so on this side of the scale one or zero on this side of the scale, from 10 to infinity. From 10 to infinity. Alright. Then Allah Ta'ala continues. And the person who comes to me by hands bent, I will go to him by an arm's length. The person who comes to me in arm's length, this is for zira, right? Then Allah Ta'ala says, I will come to them wingspan. And the person who comes to me walking, I will go to him running. And then Allah Ta'ala says, the person who meets me with sin equivalent to the size of the earth, but associated no partner with me and he didn't do shirk, I will meet him with a similar amount of forgiveness. It's a forgiveness the size of his sins, even if their sins be the size of the earth. So this hadith does open up the very possibility, like I told you that on the day of judgment, Allah Ta'ala may choose to forgive a person for all their sins. It's not necessary that a person who shows up with unrepentant sins goes to Jannah. Allah Ta'ala may choose to forgive that person on the day of judgment. Okay. I think it's clear you don't need me to explain this how this hadith gives a person hope. Right? It's not necessary that all of the blessed words of our beloved Prophet need to be explained. Most often, many hadiths are self-explanatory, as we say. Alright? Uh, but simply speaking, I'll give you an example. Let's say a person said, okay, I'm about 50-50. I think maybe I've done equal amount of good deeds, equal amount of sins in my life. But if a person is correct in that self-assessment, Allah the best, according to Zadid, they'll come out ahead, right? Because every good deed will be ten to infinity times more than every sin. Alright? Again, this is, again, I have to keep saying this, this is not a prescription to lead a 50-50 life. This is not a permission to lead a 50-50 life. This is not a license to lead a 50-50 life. Alright? Some of you are smiling, I cannot tell you, literally there are people who use this hadith for this purpose. And it's for some of them, they sweetly do it, they sweetly do it, almost like if a professor told you in class that it's okay, you know, as long as you come to class, I'm going to give you an A. There's nothing sinister, you get happy and you use that and maybe you don't write the paper, right? 
But there are some people who in a sinister way use this. And sinister means that they use this hadith to justify and legitimate their own individual sin, and then they use it to justify and legitimate other people's sin. And that is against the spirit of Islam. And it's amazing, you know, many times quote-unquote moderates love to talk about the spirit. I'll tell you, anybody who has a, uh, any, even a medium level understanding of Islamic culture will know the spirit of Islam is much more intense than its letter. The spirit is that you can never disobey Allah. The letter is Allah Ta'ala will forgive you. The spirit is you shouldn't even show up with one sin. The letter of the text that he'll tell you Allah Ta'ala will give you forgiveness equal to your sins. The spirit of Islam is more intense than the letter. This is a big myth that the spirit is very soft and the letter is very rigid and the letter is very harsh. And the softness of the letters part you are seeing today in this presentation of these hadith on hope. Why? Because these are texts, these are part of the textual tradition of Islam. Next hadith, Sayyidina Jabir narrates that once a Bedouin, and the reason why the Sahaba would mention this is that when a Bedouin would come to Nabi Akrim, he said, that speak to people according to the level of their intellect. So it means that what's coming is a very short, simple, basic, to the point teaching. And that's what happened. The Bedouin came to the Prophet and he asked him a question. He said, just tell me two things. Tell me what two things are obligatory. It means, actually there are more than two things are obligatory. But he didn't ask that, that how many things are obligatory. Tell me all, tell me two things. So he was showing the zarf, look, I can do two things. You tell me two things, I will do them. So Nabi Akrim Sallallahu told him, number one, one who dies without ever ascribing partners to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala shall enter Jannah. And one who dies in a state of shirk shall enter Jannah. So in one sense you can say Nabi Akrim Sallallahu just told him one thing. And it's the same thing you might remember Allah said in Quran. And Allah said in Quran that I can forgive anything, Allah, except one thing. And that is that anybody just shift describes partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that gives a person great hope, right? As long as you, as long as we, stay away from shift. Alright. Next thing he said, Narayana Prasina Anasibhina Malik, Okay, this is a very interesting hadith. This is Sayyidina Anasibhina Malik, narrating actually a hadith narrated to him by Sayyidina Muadh, Sayyidina Muadh, says that I was once sitting, uh, riding, sitting behind Prophet, riding, I don't, it doesn't mention the animal, perhaps a camel. And the Vietnamese Sallallahu addressed him and said, Ya Muad, and I replied, Ya Rasulullah Sallallahu I'm here, and what a pleasure it is to be with you. And you can imagine Sayyidina Muad is riding, and his chest is pressed up to the back of the Vietnamese Sallallahu and he's enjoying the ride. Hmm? So he called back to him and said, Ya Muad, he said, Ya Rasulullah I'm here, I'm present, and I am enjoying, uh, I am enjoying uh, riding with you. The symbol Arabic is Labbaik wa Sa'deik. Labbaik wa Sa'deik. It means that, how, yeah, you know, present at your beck and call, and at a state of utter joy and felicity and delight and happiness, which is also attributed to the Prophet Right. So this repeated three times. Ya Mu'ad, Ya Rasulullah Sallam, Nabeh wa Sadiq. Ya Mu'ad, Ya Rasulullah Sallam, Nabeh wa Sadiq. So three times Prophet called on Mu'ad. Then he said that a person, any person who testifies sincerely from their heart 
that there is none worthy of worship except for Allah SWT, that Muhammad is his messenger. Then, so you have just two conditions, Tawheed and Rishab, that Allah Ta'ala makes it unlawful for him to enter the fire of death. So Sayyidina he tells the Prophet should I not convey this to the people, so that they may rejoice, because this, we've done this, this is done. La ilallah Muhammad Rasulullah, we've done this. Should I tell it to the people, so they may rejoice? So Sayyidina Rasulullah, he tells him what? If you do so, they will place their reliance on it. In other words, instead of placing reliance on their a'mal, that they have to do good deeds to get into Jannah, they will simply content themselves with reciting kalima. They will simply content themselves with that. So what does it mean now? Here you can see the Prophet didn't tell him no. He just said, what would happen if you would do it? He didn't say, yes, tell them. He didn't say, no, don't tell them. He just said that if you do so, they will then place their reliance on it. So then, now, the question is, and obviously Sayyidina Muhammad did tell the people because we got it. So Sayyidina Anas predicting that people in the 21st century would have inquiring critical minds, so he makes the comment, Sayyidina Anas says, that Muadh narrated this at the time of his death, fearing the sin of concealing knowledge. So Sayyidina Muadh did not tell people, because he took it that the Prophet was sort of warning him, that look, if you tell them, they rely on this only. But then at the very, on his deathbed, he did tell, because he felt this amount of like, everything, and this is how the Sahaba were praying, it also shows you the Nizaj of Sahaba and how truly and completely and faithfully they shared everything they heard from the Kareem Sallallahu so he did share this then towards the end of his life. And those of you might remember from other classes, Sayyidina Ibn Malik was one of those Sahaba who lived in some narrations, had the longest living Sahaba. So he definitely would have been alive at this time uh, that Sayyidina Muhammad passed away. Some ulama also took from this the permission that a scholar and alim can sometimes conceal. Conceal in this sense may not disclose a certain piece of knowledge to someone if they feel that that disclosure is better for them. That non-disclosure, sorry, that non-disclosure is better for them. And that's what Sayyidina Muhammad did his whole life. He didn't disclose this to his fellow Sahaba or the Dhabi, alright, until the end of his life, okay? Uh, but anyway, again, that's a very tricky, uh, you have to be as Sayyidina Muhammad is known to people in the Fuqaha of the Sahaba, you have to be extremely learned and have wisdom in Islam to come to that decision, not to tell somebody something, right? But there may be cases like that in life. Right. So, again, this hadith gives hope in a person. Now, moving to a different type of hadith. I told you in the beginning, the hadith will be mostly focused on kalima and imam. Now, Imam Al-Nurtha is going to bring some other hadith, not on that topic, but also give a person hope. So this hadith begins as Sayyidina Abu Huraira or Sayyidina Abu Sayyid al-Khudri narrate. Now this should be understood. This hadith is also in the Sahib Imam Muslim. And so the question arises from requiring minds that there's a shubha here in the Rawi. The narrator is not even sure which Sahabi narrated it. So with that level of doubt, how can it still be a Sahih hadith? So according to the Muhaddithun, as long as it's any Sahabi, if the narrative short is that a Sahabi narrated, it's not unclear that I hear it from a Sahabi or from a Tabi, it's not unclear about that. As long as he's sure that it's a Sahabi, it's good enough to make it a Sahih. Right? So in this case, then the Tabi narrator, the successor narrator is 100% sure I heard this from one of these two. 
And that can also not think naturally, right? This may be a Tabi who's heard tens of thousands of hadith. This may be a Tabi whose life was this with a thirst for meeting thousands of Sahaba and learning from them tens of thousands of hadith. So if every now and then he can't remember 100% which of the two Sahaba, he says, I'm sure definitely either one of these two, Abu Hayr or Abu Sayyid al-Khudri told me this hadith. Alright? That's what the context is. Alright. Uh, Okay, so what is the hadith? That during the ex- expedition of Tabuk, so Tabuk was the very last uh, Ghazwa battle which Nabi Karim took part in. And this was, I think, 30 or 40,000 Salikram who were part of this battle. And they had to march a long distance in extreme heat, and their provisions became scarce along the way. Alright? So during the expedition of Tabuk, the people were suffering from hunger. So the Sahaba Khan, they went to Nabi Karim and said, Ya Rasulullah, if you permit us, we will slaughter our camels, eat their meat, and use their fat. Means the camels who are carrying our goods with us on this battle expedition. They were our beasts of burden, but we have no choice now. We're so hungry, we'll have to sacrifice them and eat them. Alright. So now watch the city very carefully. Normally, strictly speaking, in their cities, you know, person tries to stay on topic. On topic means I only talk to you about those aspects of the hadith that are about hope. But because unfortunately people today really don't know hadith. And so I have to take this opportunity and every hadith to talk to you about everything I can find in that hadith. Not just what it has to do with hope. That will make it longer inshallah. Alright? I'll make the light zilane. I'm a dim lighting set. It's, it's uh, yeah. Okay. So, Nabi Karim he said, alright, you may do so. So when word spread through this camp that the Prophet gave this permission. So then Sayyidina Omar, and this is something, there are going to be two, three hadiths like this in this chapter. These are known as Muafiqat Umar. More formally in tafsir, but also in hadith. That when Sayyidina Umar gives his ra'i, his well-considered opinion on a matter, and then Nabi Karim chooses to agree with his opinion. And sometimes there are even verses like that in Quran that Allah Ta'ala reveals the revelation according to the Ra'i of Sayyidina Umar. Alright? So Sayyidina Umar goes to the Prophet and he says, Ya Rasulullah, if you do so, our conveyances will decrease. These are beasts of burden and transport. We'll lose our number of camels. Rather, why don't you ask all of them to bring whatever remaining food they have and put it on one big dastakhan, and then you and the Biyakarim, you make dua that Allah Ta'ala put barakah in our existing meager provisions. So Sayyidina Rasulullah said, said alright. He said, okay. So then he requested for a leather mat, which he spread out, and he asked the people to bring in, bring whatever remaining food, items, flour, oil, sustenance provisions there. Some brought a mere handful of grain, others brought a handful of dates. Yet others brought a single but a single piece of bread until a few things were gathered on the mat. Then Sayyidina Rasulullah made dua for barakah to Allah. And then he told the Sahaba Kram to fill your dishes, fill your burtan with this. And they began filling and they began eating and until every single dish of every single person, I told you three to forty thousand people, every single dish of every person in that army was entirely full and they ate and ate until they were fully satiated, until there was even still some food left over. 
Now, what does this mean? I'll show you a very interesting thing. At first, when they said this, they looked at asbab. Right? And look, we have very little. We see the camels. Can we, the Nabi he allowed them. So he led his people according to their intensity. If they came to him with a question, based on asbab, he said, fine, use the asbab. That's your level. Sayyidina Umar, this is the barakah of Sayyidina Umar that he had the higher vision. He said, no, no, when we have you, this might be something we may have to do later on in our life. But when we have you with us, we don't have to look at these asbab. You are the sabab. You are the asal sabab min asbab. Your du'as are a sabab for us. And the vehicle himself agreed. And so it happened. Then when this happened, when all of the army ate, now this is the tawazu, the humility of Nabi Akrim And you will find this often in hadith that when you used to perform a mu'jizah, after performing the mu'jizah, you would very forcefully express ta'id again. Lest people overly look at him as a salam. Right? Overly look at him as a salam. So what did the Prophet say? So he said that I testify. As he's already performed shahada, he himself took shahada. I testify that there is none worthy of words except for Allah subhanahu and I am but his messenger. One who meets Allah subhanahu with these two shahada, shahadatayn, with these two testimonies of faith, without doubting them, will not be prevented from death. So it goes back to the same thing, but there were some other things in this hadith. Alright? Uh, and it also shows a beautiful sense of mushawara between Sahaba Ikram and Nabi Akram and between Nabi Akram and Sayyidina Umar this was a sunnah to listen to advice and counsel and to sometimes seek advice and counsel and if you found in that advice and counsel and opinion you found to be sound to follow it even if it did not necessarily originate from yourself alright similarly again you're going to find another hadith that talks about a lot of things ends with the same topic of Imam so this is a deed about a Sabi, Sayyidina Idban ibn Malik, somebody whose uh, name you may not have heard of, he was an Ansari Sahabi, and he was uh, oh, sorry, Badri Sahabi, uh, one of the Sahabi who participated in the battle of Badr. He narrates, and I used to lead my people to Badr Salam and Salah, and I was the Imam, leading them in Jama'ah. When it used to rain, a river of water would form between me and them, wherever he lived on the outskirts of Banu Salam. And it would make it difficult for me to reach their masjid. This also gives us evidence from the earliest sources that the Sahaba Kaam who were living in small areas, they had designated public places for the communal prayer, yani the masjid. Right? So he was waiting for Imam when it rained, I'm not able to reach them and lead them in Salah. So I came to Rasulullah and said that my eyesight is weak and when it rains, water flows in the valley between me and my people, between me and my muqtadis, alright, making it difficult for me to cross. So I would like you to come to my house and offer salah at a place which I will make into a place of salah. So he had this figure that when I'm unable to go to them, many apni jamaat nilai. I won't be able to pray in jamaat. Obviously any one of them will lead the rest, right? He was worried about what am I going to do? I'll have to pray at home, right? So he said, okay, then the best thing is to ask Rasulullah to come and pray in my house. And I will tell you, you're going to see what happens. So the following day, when the sun was quite hot, right, and this is suggesting this is after Dhuhr Salam, Sayyidina Rasulullah said, Sayyidina Abu Bakr is Siddiq when looking. So again, Nabi brought his Siddiq with him. And the two of them came and uh, 
the Prophet sought permission to enter, I gave him permission, but he did not sit down and immediately asked me, where in your house would you like me to offer the salah? Where is it? So Sayyidina al said, I indicated to the place where I preferred him to offer salah. Nabi Akhari stood there and he himself said the takbir and we, means him and Abu Bakr made a roll pray salah behind him. He offered two rakahs of salah and ended with salam and we did the same. Alright, so this hadith has also been used by jurists to establish this concept of masjid al-bayt. Uh, it's really in the salah, and sometimes they would call it masjid al-bayt that you can designate a particular place in your house, and that will be the place where you offer salah in your house, uh, or your family or children offer salah in your house. And you, it's not coming in this chapter, but other day for person misses jama'ah in the masjid, you can make jama'ah with your wife. And you could make it as a designated place. So to designate a place is not required, right? But its permissibility and its preferability is indicated from this hadith. Alright. Uh, the Gujarati communities in South Africa and England are very... Uh, I've never seen anybody in Pakistan do amal on this. But many of them, they have a musalla in their house with a proper little wudu, one or two wudu stations. And people in the family, they offer their salah in that room in particular. Alright. And they live in houses which are smaller than one canal. And here, mashallah, we've got the one canal, two canal types, but there's no concept of masjid or bayt or house musallah. Allah would forgive you. Illa, mashallah. Then, prayer, Sayyidina bin Nirmal, is also associated with the shafqa of Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to a sahabi who is, you know, near blind but with poor eyesight. <laughs> All the way there to his house, Banu Salam, outwards of Banu Salam, across the valley, just to offer salah in his house, so that he could be happy. Right? Okay. So he was obviously very happy, so he asked, he said, when I asked them, uh, I asked the Nabi Akhari to remain behind his fazira. Fazira is a dish of flour and fatty meat, which had been prepared for him. When my neighbors heard that Rasulullah was in my house, they began untrained, and so many people were dead. One of them asked, Where is Malik? I do not see him. Another replied that that man is a hypocrite. He does not love Allah and he does not love the Messenger On hearing this, Sayyidina Rasulullah responded. He said, do not say that. Do not say that about Allah. Don't say that. Do not see that he testifies that there is none worthy of worship except Allah and says it for the pleasure of Allah. So that man who would accuse Malik, he said, Allah is messenger no best. As far as we know, his inclinations and his conversations are only with the munafiqun. This is what we see, he only is friendly with them and he only talks to them. So he gave his defense as to why he said that. He said, I'm basing it on my observation that he only talks to the munafiqun. He doesn't talk to us. Therefore, I felt that he must be one from them. So Sayyidina Rasulullah repeated, one who testifies that there is none worthy of worship except Allah, desiring thereby the pleasure of Allah Ta'ala, then Allah Ta'ala makes it unlawful for him to enter the hellfire. Interesting here then, the Karim Muslim added an extra um, clause, if you will, right? Uh, that what did the person call Allah, that they're seeking thereby the expression of Allah's pleasure. So this was to exclude the hypocrites, basically. Because the hypocrites recite la ilaha illallah, but they don't do it to seek the pleasure of Allah SWT. They do it for some political um, motive or due to some worldly reason. Alright? 
And the other thing we learn from the Siddhith is that a person should always think best. Even if you see that a person is regular keeping company of the sinful, because Nifaq is a greater, that type of kufr is even greater than sin. So the Nia Bhim Sassam was saying, no, but look, even if you see him regularly keeping company of the Munafikun, right? Now, in the commentary of this Hadith, the Sahabi's full name is mentioned as Malik ibn Dukhshub. Malik ibn Dukhshub, and that he also was from the Badri Sahaba, and the Muhaddithin say that he was not a Munafik. Maybe he was going to them to make dawah, maybe he was trying to keep them close. Maybe he was a very simple person, didn't realize they were Munafik, because no doubt there were many Sahabakram who didn't really know who the Munafikun were. Alright? Okay, next week is narrated by Sayyidina Umar bin Khattab bin Azam. This is also very, but the more widely narrated and well known hadith, many of you would have heard that. There were some prisoners after a war, there were some prisoners who were taken captive and they were brought to the Vietnam and they included then some of the women who had accompanied the disbelievers. Now sometimes women would accompany them to chant and cheer them on, like cheerleaders almost. Sometimes women would accompany them as nurses to tend to the wounds of their warriors. And therefore when a battle was ended, they would also be captured as prisoners of war. A woman from amongst those prisoners was actually searching for her child. So apparently, Allah knows why, she brought her child to the battle also. That was her own choice, right? Uh, so she herself brought her child to a battle in which the unbelievers uh, were defeated. As soon as she found the infant amongst her fellow prisoners, she took hold of him, cut it to her belly, and breastfed it. Sayyidina Rasulullah then addressed us Sahaba Ikram and said, Then do you think that this woman would ever cast her child into a fire? So Sahaba Ikram said, No, by Allah, no, Allah, Allah, no. So Nabi Ikram Indeed, Allah is far more mercy for his servants than this woman has for her child. Alright? Now, obviously, this gives us hope in the sense that Allah loves His servants and He would not want to cast them into the fire of Jahannam. So the hope is that rather He will then just forgive us for the sins that we will inevitably show up in the day of judgment. But why did I say that? It's not easy to think that you will be able to repent of every sin. This itself is a dream. One is a huge dream that I lead a sin-free life of taqwa. Second dream. I actually, truly make complete tawbah of every sin I do make. That's also very hard. Most of us will end up with sin. Some, there will be some sin that we didn't truly make tawbah. We will show up like that on the day of judgment. Alright? Now there the hope is in the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Now this is another reason. This is linking the forgiveness to the mercy. Allah will forgive us because His mercy towards us is so much that He doesn't want to put us in the fire of Jahannam. Therefore He will forgive us for our sins. Because, but it reconfirms the fact, because if he does not forgive us for sins, we will be going into the fire of Jannah. Alright. Another interesting thing about this hadith, it shows that Nabi Karim was a humanist. He didn't disdain from using the example of this woman because she was an unbeliever. And obviously she was one of the foul unbelievers because she came in battle. And she must be a very hardcore one to even bring her baby along with her to the battle. I mean, that sounds like a very hardcore woman unbeliever, right? But Nabi Akhazun didn't disdain from using her as an example. An example for what? As an analogy for the mercy of Allah Ta'ala Himself. Alright? It also showed that he appreciated, he perceived and appreciated human emotion. 
which was her emotion that she was showing, clutching her baby to herself. Alright. Next to these, Sayyidina Abu Hurairah then narrates in Nabi Akareem Sallallahu said, Now this is that uh, hadith I was telling you about. When Allah Ta'ala created the creation, He wrote Katiba fi Kitabin, that He wrote in a book, right? And that book is with Him, Fawq al Arsh, with Him above the Arsh. Inna rahmati taglibu ghadabi, that indeed my mercy overwhelms my anger. Alright, my mercy overwhelms, overpowers my anger. So over there in the verse of Quran we had that my mercy encompasses everything. Here is that mercy overwhelms my anger. Alright, so what does that mean? That means that Allah Ta'ala, when He looks at us in the Day of Judgment, He will see two things. He will see our sins and He will see our Iman. Our sins will legitimately provoke His anger. Our Iman will legitimately provoke His mercy. His mercy overwhelms His anger. Alright. Next to this, Sayyidina Abu Hurairah, this is also one of the more well-known ones. Sayyidina Abu Hurairah said, I heard Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu saying that Allah SWT has divided His Rahmah, His mercy, into 100 parts. He has withheld 99 parts for Himself, and it used in the Day of Judgment, and He has sent one part to earth. It is through this one part of mercy that the creationist shows mercy to each other, so that an animal lifts its hoof, in fear of hurting its young, right? Another hadith has the wordings uh, that Allah Ta'ala sent down one mercy that is shared between jinn, men, animals, and insects, and by virtue of this they show affection and mercy to each other, all right? So again, obviously this hadith gives hope because there is mercy in this world, no matter sometimes it does appear that the world is a cruel place, unjust place, merciless place, but you do see a lot of mercy. There's not one or a hundred, there are millions of women who are tender to their children. There are millions of parents who are good to their children. There are millions of people who are happily married. Notwithstanding the data on the other side, you should look at the data on the side. There are millions of good people in this world. There are millions of people who are helping one another selflessly. There are people like that. And that's all apparently, that's all due to the mercy of Allah SWT placed between us. One part of His mercy that He placed between us. Alright, and when we see the power of Allah, there are people who are forgiven around this world. You can see the power of forgiveness in this world, right? And so Allah SWT has hundred times that amount, not nine, hundred times, because one hundred and hundred, right? Hundred times that amount, then a person has more, gets a lot of hope in the mercy and forgiveness of Allah SWT, alright? Particular mention of this insect may also be due to the fact that Allah Ta'ala said in Quran that he doesn't find it beneath him in any way. To mention the example of a mosquito, and you remember also the incident of Surah Al-Nama, of the ant insect, who showed mercy toward compassion towards her fellow ants and warned them of the coming of the army of Nabi Sulaiman Masih. Next read narrated by Sayyidina Abu Hurairah, but they don't know that Nabi Akrim said that Allah Ta'ala said in Hadith Qudsi, Alright, this is, should be a well-known Hadith. Uh, but I'm always surprised how few people know it. And this is one of those few hadith that I can actually remember the very first time in my life that I learned this hadith. But that is not a story I will share with you tonight, and perhaps never in my life. Uh, ha, ha, yes, but I remember when I first learned this hadith. And many of you are quite ahead of me because I first learned this hadith when I was... 28 years old, around 28 years old. 
which is much too late to be learning these things. Alright? Yes. So Allah subhanahu so a servant committed a sin and said more enjoyable to this screen than this. So Adnab Abdun Dhanba that a servant committed a sin, Pakala, and he said, Allahumma firli dhambi that oh my Allah forgive me my sin Allah that that my servants and slave committed a sin and my servant knows that he has a rab who forgives sin and who can also punish with sin and then that person repeated and committed the sin again first he said Allahumma now he said Rabbi this is the way I'm saying it. It's a moan. It's a plaint to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My Rabb, igfir li dhambi. That forgive me my sin. Faqalat tabaraka wa ta'ala. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Al-Naba abdi. That my servant committed a sin. Fa'alima anna lahu rabban yagfiru dhamba wa yaqfiru bil dhamba. And indeed he knows that he has a Rabb who can forgive him for his sin and can also seize him with his punishment due to that sin. Then he repeated the sin again. Oh my God, forgive me for my sin. The third time Allah added that indeed I forgive my sin, my servant his sin. And now let him do as he pleases. Alright? Now these last three words, are very commented upon in this hadith. Alright? Let me first tell you the one wrong meaning, and then I will tell you many right meanings. One wrong meaning is that as long as you do a sin three times, you can do it now for the rest of your life. Yeah. Wrong meaning is all you do is sin three times and ask Allah to forgive you, then you can do whatever you want. No, that's not what it means. Now, several right meanings. Number one, that now he has three times he did the sin, repeated the sin, and he asked me for forgiveness. It doesn't mean Allah didn't accept his tawbah the first time around. But the point is that even when he did this in the second time, he didn't forget Allah. And there were two things he didn't forget. That he has a rabb who can forgive him, and that rabb can punish him. Every word in is critical. So every time he did the sin, he remembered two things, not just the forgiveness of Allah Ta'ala. He also remembered the might, majesty, wrath, punishment of Allah Ta'ala. He remembered both. And then he did the sin again, he remembered both. Then he did the third time again, he remembered both. Alright? So now we're meaning of Yafan Masha'ala means that, okay, if he continues doing this, he shouldn't want to because he's addicted to the sin. As long as every time he does the sin, it's not three strikes her out, as long as every time he does it, he remembers the forgiveness and punishment of Allah Ta'ala. And due to remembering both, he again turned to Allah Ta'ala and begs Allah's forgiveness, again Allah will forgive him. And then if he gets this again, he has to again remember the forgiveness and wrath of Allah Ta'ala and again seek Allah's forgiveness and then again Allah Ta'ala will forgive him. Alright, that's the first and most predominant right meaning. Second right meaning can be simply this, that now that he's asked me three times, I have forgiven him, now he's free to live his life, he shouldn't have worry over the sin again. Now you're free to go, not just live, 
You don't have to worry about these sins that you did because you made true tawbah and I forgive you. It has nothing to do with him returning to the sin. Alright? So these are the two correct meanings and I mentioned to you about the uh, wrong meaning. Alright? Uh, and then some of the commentators will also use this ayah of Quran to understand the city. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Quran, who are the lead? And Allah Ta'ala is that being who accepts the tawbah from his servants and slaves and he pardons them for their evil sins and mistakes. Next to the to said, This is now a different topic. In the Prophet said, I swear in the name of that being in whose power and in, in the grasp of whose power lies the taking of my soul. That if you, addressing initially Sabaqam, that if you all never sinned, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would take you away and Allah ta'ala would bring forth yet another nation who would sin. Would bring forth another nation which would sin. So that they would seek the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He could forgive them. So another interesting thing is that because Allah Ta'ala is Al-Ghafur and Al-Ghafar, it is in His nature to forgive. And that's why it's in, it's in man's nature to sin. Now what's the sense of Allah Ta'ala's nature to forgive? It's in man's nature to sin. And it's in man's deen to seek forgiveness. It's not in his nature. It's not man's nature to seek forgiveness. And that's the people who don't have deen, they don't seek forgiveness. It's deen that bridges these two things. So that's why deen is hidayah. And deen is a deen of fitra. Alright? Allah Ta'ala's nature to forgive, man's nature to sin, and deen which teaches us to seek his forgiveness. Alright? So always remember deen is the bridge and the link between the nature of man and the nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Deen is that bridge that connects Abd and Rab. Alright? It's a very subtle shahad that Sahabah Karam radiallahu ta'ala anhu's mind also committed some sins, alright? But they were that group who always sought complete and absolute forgiveness for their sins, and it's our aqeedah that they were all uh, absolutely forgiven for any and every of their sins. Next to the narrative, Similarly, if you had not committed sins, Allah would have created other creatures which would commit sins and then seek forgiveness so that He could forgive them. Next to the narrative, we were sitting in a group with Nabi Akram along with Abu Bakr and Omar. It shows you the Sahab Akram also. Constantly always making a reference to the presence of one of these two. It was noteworthy to Jama'at the Sahaba if one of these two was present. So, so the Ijma'at Sahaba, their, their common, communal, universal, unanimous heart feeling that these two were extremely important individuals. And when they're teaching a Tabi, the words of the Prophet, if any other Sahaba happened to be present, they don't mention that. But if that incident took place in the presence, of Sayyidina Abu Bakr or Sayyidina Umar, it was noteworthy and it was a point to mention to the Tabi when they did Nakal, when they did Dubai, when they narrated that again. So we're sitting in the group of Nabiya Kareem, some of us from Abu Bakr and Umar, and the Nabiya Kareem, so some then stood up and left us. 
After quite some time had passed and he still did not return, he began to fear that some harm had come to him. We stood up in alarm. I, me, Abu Hurairah, was the first to be alarmed, and I went out in search of Sayyidina Rasulullah until I reached an orchard belonging to the Ansar. Alright. Now, Imam Nawir has not narrated this hadith in its entirety. The complete hadith from where he took it is in the Sayyid Muslim. Like I told you again earlier time, the Muhaddithin, because there was more literacy of hadith. So when they did their hadith, they were talking to people who knew all these hadith. They were just trying to show them that these hadith that you already know in detail, they have some particular aspects of inspiring hope. But we live in a time when people don't have that hadith literacy. So we're going to go back to the Sahih Muslim and pluck out the rest of the hadith. So the rest of the hadith, which is not put is that Sayyidina uh, he goes out uh, in search of the bottom until he reaches an orchard. It says that when I reached an orchard belonging to the Banu al-Najjar clan of the Ansar, I circled the orchard looking for a way in, but could not find any entrance. Finally, he noticed a brook or a stream flowing into the orchard through a gap beneath the walls. He squeezed through this opening and found Sayyidina Rasulullah inside. Sayyidina Rasulullah assured him that he was safe and gave him his sandals to go show as an assurance to the Sahaba Ikram who were waiting outside. And then he told them, Abu Hurairah, to tell them that the glad tidings of, with the glad tidings of paradise for whoever testifies that there is none where they worship except for Allah subhanahu wa and that Muhammad sallallahu is his messenger. After Abu Hurairah received this good news, he conveyed it to the first person he met, which was Sayyidina Umar. So Sayyidina Abu Hurairah, he exited there, he came out, went back to Sahaba, the first person he meets is Sayyidina Umar. Sayyidina Umar just struck him on the chest and told him not to convey this to the people. So in the meantime, this is the respect that these junior Sahaba had for him. So Sayyidina Umar, he initially says, okay, fine. At some point later, Sayyidina Rasulullah comes out. Now the interesting thing of the hadith is it's suggesting because the only way into that orchard was to go underneath this tight spot. So sometimes Nabi Karim Sallallahu and I didn't have this hadith when I gave you that talk two weeks ago. Sometimes Nabi Karim Sallallahu wanted to be alone. Yeah, and so when he wanted to be alone, he would go and sneak and find some place where people normally couldn't get in. So it means he must also have gone underneath, in this gap underneath the wall, squeeze through to go alone and sit in the orchard and reflect. Right? But much of the Sahaba had so much love for him, they wouldn't let him be alone. They sent out Sayyidina Umar in search of him and he found him. Alright? Okay. So here, then later Nabi Akhim comes out. Alright? So then Sayyidina Rasulullah is told about this. That Sayyidina Umar told me that I cannot tell the people. So then Sayyidina Umar explains why. He says that the people would rely on this good news and they would neglect the performance of good amal with the result that they would be deprived of the higher stages of paradise that are given to those who have iman plus amal. Given to the iman plus amal. And then Sayyidina Rasulullah agreed to Sayyidina Umar's opinion and he said, yes, don't tell the people. Alright? question is still, how did we know about it? I'm going to get to that in a moment. Right? And this is another, but I told you, Muafiqati Umar. The Sayyidina Umar expressed his well-considered opinion of Ra'i and Sayyidina Rasulullah agreed with it. Okay? Alright. 
So why did Sayyidina Abu Hurairah tell this? Ultimately, it's understood that the same reason that we have stated on record that Sayyidina Muaz said it is an amana, and we will eventually tell the people. Alright? And also has a very important teaching, which is this, that a person should want to have the higher darajah of their And that if a person only makes it on the basis of their imam, without imam, he will have lowered their religion. Now for people like me and you, any, I mean, our states, anything in Jannah would be a miracle from Allah SWT, a mercy from Allah SWT. But still, a person should want. And if you look at that, we're like that in dunya. Right? If I told you, look, I'll give you two options in life. Either you will get scraped by the bare minimum subsistence level of dunya, means that you will never starve and be poor and be unclothed, or you can get higher income uh, status. What do you go for? Your entire life, except the exceptions of a couple of you, your entire life has been lived in the pursuit of higher income status, which is only going to end in, in, in a finite lifetime. If that's your attitude towards higher income status in this world, shouldn't we have a similar serious attitude and desire for higher darajah in Jannah? Right? Okay. And clearly, if anybody would have had such a thing, it would have been Sahabika. Perhaps towards the end of their life, maybe not that they saw this in Tabin, but they began to see that if the difference between us and the Tabin is so much, and what's the difference going to be after that, and after that, and after that, and if we don't share this amana, and one day in time there will be a generation of Muslims who for them they really need to know this, because for them, right? Because they don't have so many amal. For them, they need this. They will need to know this, that they will get Jannah on the basis of their Imam. And so perhaps that's why the Salaam shared this city towards the end of their life. And certainly Imam Nagar could have excluded it from his collection, but the Muhajjateen included it in their collections that were designed for Awam al-Nas, Amat al-Nas, for the ordinary believers. Then comes the same hadith of Sayyidina Muhammad and Dabba, which I was not clear and I didn't have time to research this in the commentaries, why Imam Nagar chose to repeat it here. The wording is slightly different, but here I'll just read it for you because we already did the city third in the chapter. Sayyidina Muhammad said, I was riding behind Rasulullah on a donkey, so here the animal is mentioned, when uh, the Prophet said to me, Ya Muhammad, you know what Allah SWT writes is on his servants and what the servants' right is on Allah SWT. I replied to Allah SWT's messenger, no best. Then the Prophet said that Allah subhanahu wa right of his servants is that they should worship him and not ascribe partners with him. And the servants' right of Allah subhanahu is that he does not punish anyone who does not ascribe partners with him. Now the language is stronger, that it's your haq on Allah subhanahu that he does not punish you as long as you did not do shirk. So I said, she said, Ya Rasulullah should I not grant people the glad tidings of this? And the Prophet replied, No, because if you do so, they will rely on these tidings, yani, and abandon good deeds. Right? It's like what I told you, Nabi Akhim understood human nature. Right? Uh, and uh, that may be why Muhammad put the chapter on fear first. And basically, it, fear can be used to stay away from bad deeds, and fear can also be used to do good deeds. For example, when you fear failing the exam, you do the good deed known as the all-nighter. Right? That's a, that's a good deed. Right? 
And if you didn't have the fear of failing an exam, you wouldn't have done the good deed called the all-nighter. Alright? So fear can lead to good deeds. Al-Bara'a bin Azir radiallahu ta'ala Now he says, Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam When a Muslim is questioned in the grave, he testifies that there is none worthy of worship except Allah. A believer does a good deed. This is an important hadith. When a disbeliever does a good deed, they receive risk in return for that good deed in this world. As for a believer, Allah SWT stores their good deeds for him and the hereafter and also rewards him with risk in this world because of his obedience or not. So what does this mean? Uh, this is actually a very important theological thing that some people ask, right? And this may be why, well, you know, sometimes it's very interestingly that this one hadith can explain the situation much more simply and much more accurately than all of the modernist understanding. And the modernist Muslims often like to say, but, that look, if only you had, and, and it's a more Pakistani phenomenon, right? Modern Pakistani Muslims say, but if only you had adab and you had justice, then you would be prosperous like the countries in the West. And it means that by that they're confessing their measure of humanity lies simply in figures known as GDP and per capita and all of that. Right? Or until now they have the human development index that can be a bit more refined. Right? So actually what's happening is that the Vietnamese will explain this. Yes, they do good deeds and they get risk in this world. Right? And yes, if you're saying, and I accept it also, that they may be, and it's not, by the way, it's not true in an absolute sense. Every American is not better than every Pakistani. That's called self-hate, by the way. And that's a, that's a post-colonial phenomenon that people have. You know, just because the traffic is a bit more orderly there, right? Just, well, not so much in New York City, but that's because of the Pakistani cab drivers. Probably may some, right? But it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you become so self-hating that you really, really think that every Western is better than every Muslim. That's not true. Alright. Even this claim that the average Westerner is better than the average Muslim, I would say Allah knows best really. I won't I won't I won't say the other way around. I won't even make that claim that the average Muslim is better than the average Muslim. I can't even say that. I'll be honest, I can't say that. I'll tell you there's some really good people in the West and there's some really good Muslims. And there's some really bad people in the West and there's some really bad Muslims. There are a lot of people in between in the West and there are a lot of people in between in the Muslims. These three things I know. Alright. A greater or less than, or equal than, Allah knows best. There's no sociologist alive who can really definitively, scientifically prove that to you. It's irrelevant, right? But if you're interested in understanding these things, then this is the metric that you use, is that he's going to be agreeing Allah So, there may be goodness in the Muslim world that doesn't get rewarded in this life, because the goodness that Muslims do in the world can be rewarded by Allah Ta'ala in the afterlife. However, there is no goodness in the Western world. In the West, I'm using loose now, includes Japan, alright? That will go unrewarded in this life because their only reward is in this life. If you understood that sentence, then you can understand maybe another reason why things look different. That's not the only reason why this hadith isn't the only, this is one angle. There's actually much more uh, to which would go into understanding, let alone explaining. Uh, the relative condition of Muslims or this Ummah relative to other civilizations in the 21st century. There's a lot more of the cities, but not suffice to understand it, but it has an element uh, of understanding.
The hadith that give hope from Amal. These are hadith that give hope from the fact that you have Imam. But he's going to pick Amal that most people, are, at least in his time, had. Right? So, what is the hadith? That the likeness of the five daily salah is like that of an abundantly flowing river at your door in which you bathe five times a day. What does it mean that if a person prays five times a day, they have great hope and the forgiveness of Allah because their sins are washed away every time they pray? It gives them greater hope. They have greater hope now. Great hope because of their iman and greater hope because of atma. Alright? Greater hope because of atma. Allah SWT, there's a verse in Quran that Allah SWT used to comment on this. Baqim salata tarafin nahari wal zulufatam min al That you should establish the salat between the ends of the day and the night, in the early hours of the night. In al hasanati yukhib nasiyyat. Indeed, the good deeds take away the bad deeds. Dalika zikral al-dhaqirin. Indeed, this is a counsel, a nasiha, an admonishment, a reminder for those who wish to be mindful. Alright? Uh, so this shows again that amal uh, bring greater forgiveness, and therefore the person who has amal has the greater hope. Then some other amal. This is also so five times prayer should have been for everybody. This next one is also for everybody. Illa mashallah. Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas narrated said, "I heard Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam say, when a Muslim passes away and forty people who do not ascribe partners, you know, don't do shirk with Allah Taala." Attend his janazah, funeral prayer, Allah Ta'ala accepts their intercession in his favor. So almost everybody will have 40 people at their janazah. And almost everybody was supposed to pray five times a day. So Imam is picking those amal that pretty much everybody is supposed to have. Alright? Then Sayyidina Ibn Masood narrates in this next day that we were 40 people with the Messenger of Allah Ta'ala in a tent. And he asked us, Would you like. It means, would you as an ummah like to be one quarter of the inhabitants of Jannah? We replied, yes. So would you like to be one third of the inhabitants of Jannah? We said, yes. So would you, by that being in, in, the, in, the, in whose power's grasp is the life of Muhammad sallam, I hope that you will be half the inhabitants of Jannah. Why? Because he said, this is because only a Muslim soul shall enter Jannah in comparison to the mushrikeen, uh, those who ascribe partners to Allah, you are like the strand of white hair on the skin of a black ox, or the strand of a single strand of black hair on the skin of a red, I mean reddish brown ox. What does it mean? So, Nabi Akareem sallallahu was looking at his contemporary time and also likely global past and you know future humanity. That believers will always be a minority, right? Uh, now, the important thing to look at in this hadith, uh, you see there are three things in this hadith. Number one is okay that Nabi Yaqim said, just saying, I hope you will be half. This suggests to me, at least personally, that half won't be Muslims. Right? Because Nabi Yaqim was a person of great hope. And he was Ahmad al-Alameen. So if there's any notion that Jannah will be 99% Muslim or 90% Muslim or 80% Muslim, the Prophet would have himself had that estimation. So he put his best estimation and hope at half. So what does it mean half the people in Jannah will be other types of believers from other prophets from previous periods? 
między innymi some of the Sahaba of Musa salam, the Awadin of Nabi salam, some of the early followers of Nuh salam. Allah Allah, that's half. Now that's quite a large amount. It really depends now uh, how many Muslims you think will make it into Jannah. The, the historical difficulty will lie in the following. I have answered this question, I'm just going to put a question in front of you. If up till now, the Hadith are making us understand that every person who at least dies in Iman will ultimately go to Jannah. Right? So that's a lot of Muslims. There are 1.5 billion alive today. And there have been some billions who have been alive in the past 1400 years. So Allah Allah maybe, let's say 50 billion or 100 billion. Right? So if I say that's half, that means I have to go back in history and find another 100 billion people who are going to be in Jannah. That's a lot of people. And that's a lot of people to accept, had, will be blessed by Allah Ta'ala in Jannah. So when anybody asks you this question, that look, does your religion tell you that only Muslims will go in Jannah? So my religion tells me that half the people in Jannah will be Muslim. And my heart tells me, and my religion tells me that all the Muslims will be in Jannah. And you people and your demographers tell me that that's about 100 billion people. And my religion tells me 100 billion people who aren't from religion of Islam will also be in Jannah. Now who they are, that my religion doesn't tell me. That my religion tells me. Is it the Jews of today? Is it the Jews of 14 years ago? Well, I don't know that. Right? But I know half of them are going to be, you know. And then you, if you're doing strong da'wah, right, this is where you stop if you're talking to the secularists. And if you're in da'wah mode, then you say, now you have a 50% chance. If you convert to Islam, <laughs> you already, I already gave you a 50% chance. Why don't you come on this 50%? Right? Wait something. Alright? And that, that is another tragedy of modernity. That in the past, in our history, interfaith dialogue was done for the sake of Tao. Now it's done for the sake of dialogue only. That's a shame. You know? That you start something, but you think that your goodness means that you shy short of inviting the Christian to accept Islam. I, he may think that's goodness in this world, but when the judgment is going to come to you and say, look, I actually came to an integrate dialogue. I actually sat in front of you. And you didn't make a dawah on me. You know? It's a law of Kabira. Taji. Next to the Sayyidina Abdullah. And if you did the strength, okay, anyway. Yeah, the, the other thing I was going to tell you, is that the mushrikeen are allowed. Because, you see, if all the believers who go to Jannah are one strand, the other half of Jannah will be yet another strand. Another strand. And then how many strands of hair are there on the back of an animal? Alright, so that's another thing there. There's a lot of people going to Jannah. Alright. Allah, give me Allah. Next day, narrative by Sayyidina Abu Musa al-Ashri, but I'm not there. Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa almost done that, just a couple of pages. That Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, that on the day of Qiyamah, yeah, this is a, yeah, I remember perhaps, okay. On, on the day of Qiyamah, Allah Ta'ala will hand over a Jew or Christian to every Muslim and say, this is your redemption from the hellfire. According to another narration, the Prophet said that a group of Muslims will be brought on the Day of Judgment with sins the size of mountains, and Allah will forgive them all. Now, this is a bit of a problematic hadith to explain here. It's in the Sahih Muslim, so it's completely authentic. 
This is one of those hadiths that you see there's a field in hadith which is known as matan analysis. I refer to it as analysis of criticism because criticism in the secular Western Academy suggests an element of untruth. And they don't use the word criticism for something that's absolutely true. They use the word criticism for something which is probabilistic but is not certain truth. But for us, Quran and authentic hadith are certain truth. So I prefer to use the word analysis. All right. Now, when you do matan analysis over here, right? first interesting thing is that normally when the Muhaddithin talk about this in another narration, it's almost the same. But the second narration is so different from the first one. The first one is talking about a Jew and a Christian. I repeat again, the first narration on the Day of Judgment, Allah will hand over a Jew or Christian to every Muslim and say, this is your redemption from the hellfire. Another narration. The Rasul said, a group of Muslims will be brought in the name of judgment with sins the size of mountains and Allah will forgive them all. Second one is very easy, right, to understand. There's no need for analysis there and it goes along with everything we're saying. What does it mean that a Jew and Christian will somehow be the redemption of the Muslim on the day of judgment, right? Now, the first thing I will tell you is... Uh, some uh, ulama tried to understand this hadith using another hadith. I personally find that a little bit of a strained analysis, but I'm going to share it with you anyway, because if ever you look at more classical texts, you will find this given. What is that? There's another hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu which doesn't mention Jews and Christians, though. It's very important. That, that the Prophet Sallallahu said that every person has a place reserved for him in Jannah and a place reserved for him in Jahannam, because a believer had a chance of going to either of two places. Uh, every person, every human, had a chance of going to either two places. When a believer enters paradise, a disbeliever takes his place in Jannah because he is eligible for that on account of his unbelief. So what does it mean? It's almost like, understand it, like let's say you have, you're holding two hotel reservations. Right? One in, I don't know, Hilton, right? One in Jannah, right? And one in Jannah. Now, if you become a believer, and a human, every human has two reservations. If that human chooses to become a believer, then they end up taking the reservation of Jannah. Then that room is now, so, you, so to speak, is vacancy again, right? And Allah Ta'ala will fill that room with a disbeliever, right? This, that, that in and of itself makes sense, right? That's just a way of Allah Ta'ala expressing two things. Number one is that you could have gone either way, right? Number two, the fact that you went the right way doesn't mean that there weren't people who went the wrong way. And even though you lived the life that earned yourself Jannah through Allah Ta'ala's mercy, there are people who are going to end up in that spot in Jannah, right? It doesn't mean there's no notion of trade here though. It doesn't mean that you go to Jannah because the Jew or Christian goes in your place. That's not what it means. Alright? Uh, and because the Hadith says every person, it was true for the disbeliever also, they also started with two reservations. Right? Uh, you can also look at it this way, that the whole two, because Jannah and Jannah are finite. So these are limited rooms, mahdud rooms. Right? And so let's say there are 10 billion people, there are, five, there are 10 billion rooms. Right? And it was necessary that certain would go there and certain would go here. Alright? Going back to the city, a group of Muslims would brought on the Day of Judgment with sins, uh, sorry, uh, 
on the Day of Judgment, Allah Ta'ala will hand over a Jew or a Christian to every Muslim and say, this is your redemption from the hellfire. Alright? Uh, what this hadith means is beyond my understanding right now. Right? But I can just tell you that the Arabic here is, and sometimes we think these things are deliberate. Obviously Allah Ta'ala, everything He does in Quran is with deliberation. The Arabic is what in fancy is we call abstruse. It's not clear. What exactly does it mean that you're redemption from Alpha? Right? Uh, it might mean, the only way you can understand this other deed, it might be understood this way. And look, I mean, but that wouldn't be true in of itself. Because obviously, let's say every human being chose to be pious, Allah Ta'ala can put everybody in Jannah. Sonic is beyond Allah Ta'ala's might and power. But you can say out of Allah Ta'ala's foreknowledge, he has made Jannah according to the number of its inhabitants, and he has made Jahannam according to the number of its inhabitants. So, at a certain level, not of theology, but a certain level of explaining, if the people who were meant to go to Jannah didn't go to Jannah, uh, the people who were meant to go to Jahannam did not go to Jannah, then maybe there wouldn't have been space in Jannah. That's the, that's the best I can come up with this. Alright? Uh, but that's my own shortcoming for you tonight that I did not do my own research on the city as much as uh, humanly possible. Uh, so we'll leave this. This is one of the question marks. But this is uh, something I would say to you uh, because it actually, I think, enables me to teach you something even more important. One would be to actually have taught you the deep, accurate, correct meaning of everything. But this gives me a bit of teach a more important lesson is sometimes you may read a hadith that you don't fully understand what it means. No problem. For me in my life, there's never been a problem for me whatsoever. Right? Because it doesn't affect my belief in its being true. Right? Now, there's a human interest in resolving the problem. That depends on what type of hadith it is. Is it a hadith that is relevant to your hidayah? That yes, you have, you absolutely, it's incumbent upon it's followed upon you to understand to the best of your ability and the best of your access to Islamic scholarship what is the deep meaning of that hadith so you get hidayah. And if it's an hadith like this one that actually has no relevance to your hidayah, what exactly does this mean about the Jew and Christian being offered as redemption? It doesn't affect you in any way, right? Because that particular does not mean that you. It would not mean what some maybe radical person may try to think, but it doesn't mean that, that you have to go do something to some Jew and Christian to get to Jannah. Definitively doesn't mean that, right? So it's not pertaining to your hadith. Now, to understand the deep meaning of those hadith whose meanings are obscure and whose meanings do not pertain directly to hadith and deen, that is called scholarship. That's what ulama are for. And that's what the Al-Muqtanas are not for. And you would be in a great dilemma of your life if I said you were for that. Because then you basically have to become a full-time scholar and abandon whatever profession or whatever work you do. Alright? Okay. I could have skipped it. You wouldn't have known. Well, if it was that, you wouldn't have known. Right? Uh, but I felt it's not... Uh, I don't like to hide things from you. Next to the the next two are also well, uh, alhamdulillah, less well known uh, for, in the sense that people can mis misinterpret them. That's what I will have to explain to you the rules of interpretation that can take place. So these two are these, I will read them together and comment on them together. So I can say a bit of time for you and you can take 
Then Abdullah bin Mas'ud bin Nari said, a man kissed a woman. It means a Sahabi man kissed a Sahabi woman outside the top. Alright? And came to Sayyidina Rasulullah and told him. Allah SWT then revealed the verse. Right? This is now such an important incident. You see? What? That the Sahaba committed sin. This is a serious, Allah Prophet took this seriously. Allah Prophet used this as an occasion to reveal the revelation. Alright? I already explained this verse to you. Right? That established the prayer of the during the, the day the portions of the early portions of the night. And uh, indeed good deeds uh, take away or wipe out the evil deeds. So call the rhythm. That's a hobby, he said. And this is the other that nobody mentioned the name of that Sahaba and nobody mentioned the name of the Sahabiyah. Right? That male Sahabi said, uh, Is this hadith for me only? And then the Nabi Akhirin For all of my ummah, each and every single one of them. Right? Now, oh, said, let me do the second Ithnanat expansion. Sayyidina Anushman of the Narayans said, A man came, again, not mentioning the name, a man came to Rasulullah and said, the Yalasulasam, I committed a sin. It doesn't mention what the sin is. Just as which necessitates punishment. Okay? And he said, Asatu Hadda. That it means that I committed a sin and I took it to the point such that I am now eligible for a had, a pres- prescribed uh, penalty punishment. Alright? Fakim Fa'aliya Urasulasam applied this had penalty punishment upon me. Okay. salah, and then the time for salah happened to occur. Rasulullah He prayed with Rasulullah Then when he finished his salah, he said, Ya Rasulullah Same thing, right? And I committed the sin to the point that I took it to the level that a had penalty is due upon me. Please establish that upon me, which has been prescribed in the book of Allah Subhanahu Taala. Okay. Uh, Rasulullah asked him a question. Were you with us in this salah? It can also be, were you with me in this salah? Yes, I was with you. Now your prayer, your sin has been forgiven. Alright. Now, going back to the first uh, hadith, because these two hadith have to now be taken together, they have to be understood with each other. The first hadith, uh, the first thing to say about that is kissing is not a sin that has a had punishment. And the understanding of this, had, the second hadith is that it was some, let's just say, how should I put this, some further level of transgression with a woman, uh, with a member of non mahram uh, which requires had. Uh, all right. Now, in Imam Nawirata, he's also understood that, that's why he put these two hadith together. Alright? Now, for the first hadith, which is the first type of sin, that does not require the ad punishment, no doubt, then it is one of those sins which are sometimes called sahair, or lesser sins. And this is a term Allah Ta'ala Himself has used in Quran Sahira or Kabira, that there will be two types of sins mentioned in a person's book of deeds. Alright? And that those sahair, lesser sins, could be wiped away, by the performance of good deeds. Alright? But it does not mean 
that a person does these things that okay, I'll go kiss a girl like that, and I'm going to pray salah afterwards, and in that hasanat, you can see that. Right? That's not what a person is supposed to do. Right? Sorry, guys. Right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Taken. Okay. However, the second hadith, uh, which I, the reason I feel it should not be coupled, is because Nabi Akhirim Sassam did ask him, Did you pray salah? He said, Ma'ana. Did you pray with me? Now, Everything has to have a balance in it. But sometimes in the name of Etidal and balance in our deen, sometimes we suppress certain things. So I have to tell you very openly, Sayyidina Rasulullah, in his zaat there was a barakah. And there's a certain barakah in his zaat that is not there in his kalam. That's what I mean, you aren't sahaba. Do you understand? There's a reason. Otherwise, if a muhaddish should be the same level as a sahabi, why? Because you say, well, the Prophet was only about his teachings. In fact, in fact, although I don't want to perplex you further. Some Muhaddithin probably knew more Hadith than many Sahaba. Because many Sahaba did not know all the Hadith of Nabi Akhirim Sallallahu So there's something extra, something irreplaceable, something more profound than his teachings was his Zat, his presence, his company. So this Hadith is talking, the Prophet didn't say, did you pray Salah? Every word he said, he said, Ma'ana, did you pray with us? Because if you prayed with Sayyidina Rasulullah that could be a great, that's a great good deed that could help expiate from you to a greater level of sin. That means you don't have access to them. Alright? That means you do not have access to them. Third point. Technically speaking, however, if that Sahabi did do something that was a hug offense, <coughs> Then even praying with Nabi Karim Sallallahu would not have obviated the hut punishment upon him. Again, now we don't know anything more than this hadith. No, no hadith scholar does. And the hadith, I'm not a scholar, but I'm saying none of the hadith scholars know more than this hadith. Now, this scholars then resort to another tool, which in English you would bluntly have to call speculation, to understand this hadith, and what could have happened. So one possibility now, we cannot, there's no claim that this is definitive. But definitely when I say it, you have to accept it's possible. One possible is that Sayyidina Rasulullah ascertained to Allah Ta'ala inspiring him through ilham that what the Sahabi did was actually not something that was worthy of Allah. The, Sahaba, the Sahabi thought it was like that. And there's another incident of Hadith, another incident of a Sahabi mentioned where exactly that happens. That the Sahabi comes to Nabi Yaqeen and asks, put the hard punishment on me. And the Nabi Yisrael asks him, what did you do? And the Sahabi tells him what he did, which was some level of, let's just say, some level of sin. And the Nabi Yisrael tells him, no, no, that, that is not. You didn't take it to the level that had comes on it. So from that hadith we know, the Sahabi comes, taqwa was so much, that when they did it, they just felt it, like, I need to be punished. And their desire for that toba and the desire for that expiation, and mercy, and forgiveness, and all that, that is promised, to that person, because that's other hadith, that that person who volunteers for the had punishment when the had is truly due upon them, receiving the had punishment, Allah sends a mercy on them that if it was distributed to the sinners in the whole world, it would be enough to forgive all the sinners, the sins of all the sinners in the world. So the Sahabakram knew that, so they were overly eager to get that punishment, when sometimes legally shut on it, it was not due upon them. So this 
again, we cannot see definitively, but we can speculate that that was the same case here. That he thought he had done a punishment that was worthy of da'al. And maybe he indeed came close. And that's why it was the barakah of praying with Nabi Ibrahim that was a sufficient expiation for his sin. Alright. Okay. Then the... There's three hadith left. Allah is pleased with his slave who eats a single morsel of food and then praises Allah for that morsel. Or drinks a gulp of water and then praises Allah for that gulp. So again, these are aman that everybody does. Right? And that, I mean, that's not correct. The eating and drinking part we all do, the praising Allah, many of us forget to do. But at that time, these were things, this was something that people used to do. So the point is that you have hope in the forgiveness of Allah because His forgiveness can be found in such simple and so easy and accessible an act as praising Him after you eat, take a bite, and as praising Him after you drink a cup. Allah extends the reach of His mercy at night so that the sinner of the day may turn in repentance and He extends the reach of His mercy during the day so that the sinner of the night may turn from repentance until the sun rises from the west. So this hadith is uh, suggesting, the question is that how long do you have to make Tawbah? So one answer could have been, if you make a sin at night, you have until sunrise to make it. If you make a sin during the day, you have sunset to make it. This is saying that Allah SWT extends the reach of His mercy in the first 24 hours of sin. After the 24 hours, it doesn't mean that Allah's mercy is forgiven, but His extending His reach. I just shouldn't have done that. That's actually, there should be, I didn't mean to do that. Allah does not have a hand in it. I'll extend in any way that I just did that. Uh, but when, after 24 hours, doesn't mean Allah Ta'ala's, the doors to his tawbah are closed, but Allah Ta'ala is not reaching out to that person. So the, the, what the lesson we're supposed to take from this is to make tawbah within 24 hours. Second lesson is that the heart is more soft and more remorseful and more repentant and more likely and more prone to make tawbah in the first 24 hours because when a person makes sins, Allah Ta'ala reaches out His mercy and envelops him in His mercy and inspires his heart to make tawbah in the first 24 hours. And then after that, that reaching out of Allah Ta'ala is taken away. Now this is an incredible hadith because you would think Allah Ta'ala reaches out to a person who does a good deed. Here saying the sinner when he sins, immediately Allah sends his mercy fleeing towards him and wraps him in his mercy. And keeps him in his wrap of mercy for 24 hours. So that cooks him in this tawbah incubator. And then you can imagine how hardened that person must be who doesn't make tawbah in the first 24 hours. But after that first 24 hours are forgiven, it doesn't mean that the... Tawbah doors are forgiven, and you can still make, and many people may make Tawbah to Allah SWT. Alright? So, the reason why this hadith gives hope, is you have hope in the forgiveness from that being who reaches out to you immediately upon sinning, and tries to put in your heart the desire to seek his forgiveness. Alright? 
Okay. And the last of these, and you're going to do one uh, out of order. Uh, because the last hadith is actually a second to last one is a slightly long hadith. But in that, I can, except for one thing, I will just read it. There's only one thing I have to comment on. So the very last hadith in the chapter. When Allah Ta'ala intends to show mercy upon, actually, it's more enjoyable to do that last, last my moment, but last. So we stick to his order. Hadith number 438. Okay. Abu Najih Amr ibn Abbas narrates During the days of Jahiliyyah, I believe that people were astray and that they and they were not on the truth because they worshiped idols. Then I heard of a person of a man in Makkamakarma who was speaking of certain things, so I mounted my rock steed and I went to him. It was Rasulullah who was secretly conveying his message while his own people openly opposed him. So I planned to meet him secretly and succeeded in meeting him in Bakr Bakarma. I asked him, what are you? He replied, I am a prophet. I asked, what is a prophet? He replied, Allah Ta'ala has sent me. I asked, what did he send you with? He replied, he has sent me with the task of maintaining ties of kinship, destroying idols, and that Allah Ta'ala be accepted as one without describing any partner to him. I asked, who is with you in this? He replied, a free man and a slave. At that time, the narrator mentioned that at that time, Abu Bakr and Bilal were with him. I said, I would like to follow you. He said, you will not be able to do so at present. Do you not see my position and the position of my people? Rather, return to your people, and when you hear that I have prevailed, then come to me. So I returned to my people, and the messenger of Allah went to Medina Manawra while I remained with them. I continued seeking news and inquiring from people when he reached Medina. Eventually some people from the inhabitants of Medina came, and I asked them, What has happened to this man who came to Medina? They replied, People are hastening to him. His people want to kill him, but they are unable to do so. His people mean al Mecca. So I went to Medina Manawra and met him. I said, Ya Rasulullah, do you recognize me? He replied, Yes, you are the one who met me in Mecca. I said, Ya Rasulullah, inform me what Allah Ta'ala has taught you and about which I am ignorant. Inform me about Salah. So clearly this person must have heard that there's a way of worship. By now he was keeping tabs, he must have heard lots of things about the religion. So the Prophet said, perform the Fajr Salah and then abstain from Salah until the sun has risen to the height of the length of the spear. You may remember I explained this to you about Salah al this is because when the sun rises, it rises between the two horns of shaitan. And it is at this time that the unbelievers prostrate before it. Then you may perform salah because this, that salah is witnessed and attended by angels until the shadow is equal to the spear. Then abstain from salah because at that time hell is ignited. This is the time of what is known as zawal. When the shadow begins increasing, you may perform salah that's called zohar. Because that salah is witnessed and attended by angels until you perform the asr salah. Then abstain from salah until the sun sets. After you perform asr salah, don't pray any other salah until until the sun sets, because it sets between the two horns of shaitan. And it is at this time that the unbelievers prostrate before it. I said, Ya Rasulullah, tell me about wudu. He said, there is no person among you who brings his wudu, brings the water for wudu, then gargles his mouth, places water in his nose and blows it out without the sins of his face, mouth, and nose falling away. 
Then when he washes his face, Allah does order the sins of his face fall away. And the sins of his face fall away with the water from the sides of his beard. Somebody again. Then when he washes his hands until his elbows, the sins of his hands fall off with the water from the tips of his fingers. Then when he passes his wet hands over his head, the sins of his head fall off with the water from the ends of his hair. Then when he washes his feet until his ankles, the sins of his feet fall off with the water from the tips of his toes. Then he stands up and performs salah, praises Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, glorifies him, expresses his majesty in accordance with his status and devotes his heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he relieves himself of his sins like the day his mother gave birth to him. Amr bin Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Abu Umama bin Al-Tanabu Sahabi of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu Abu Umama said to him, O Amr bin Abbas, be careful of what you're saying. A person receives all of this in one place. Amr said, O Abu Umama, I have grown old, my bones are weak, and my end is near. I have no need whatsoever to fabricate a lie against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Messenger of Allah sallallahu If I heard it from the Messenger sallallahu only once, twice or thrice, he counted seven times, I would never have related it, but I heard it from him more times than that. And this was narrated by Imam al-Muslim al-Sahih. The reason I did this for you is that one problem is a lot of us, we only know the short hadith. And I wanted you to see what you're missing out when you don't learn the long hadith. Alright? Second, there are a lot of interesting things here to comment on and I will be unable to resist commenting on them. Carefully. Alright? Number one, Amr ibn Abbas says, as you can tell, because you haven't heard of him, it's not very well-known Sahabi, but according to the Ulama Hadith, every single Sahabi is sick of. Here, sometimes what happens is if a Sahabi narrates a Hadith that some other Sahaba haven't heard, so they like that there should be some corroboration. So, Tayyid or Taqi, and that is what uh, the narrator himself is offering when he says he heard this more than seven times from the Hadith Sallallahu Now, let me go the city backwards about wudu and salah. One offering wudu once and praying one salah was that same thing that you all know is mentioned Sayyid that we're going on Shabd Hajj and coming back from Arafat, which is what? That relieves him of sins like the day his mother gave birth to him. So if that was true about the rukan of Hajj, it's also true about the rukan of salah. Right? One salah. Alright? But the feeling is that a person made that wudu and made that salah with a lot of feeling. So that is the power of one salah. Alright? So then, a good way to understand this is if you miss a salah, you should think like you missed a hajj. Because the salah is an opportunity for you to get that forgiveness from Allah Subhanahu It also shows us the importance of salah and why it's a rukah, just like hajj. Alright? I was teasing you there when I said the water fell away from the face from the sides of the beard. But yes, if you are a true literalist, and they have been literalist trends in Islamic scholarship, then the literalist, strict literalist stance would be the forgiveness of the sins of the face or incumbent and having a beard from which the water could drop down. If you were to be a true literalist, because that's what the words that are mentioned there. But I would say that no, the forgiveness is not based on that. Right? Uh, here, another thing I've mentioned to you that some of you may have seen in some books of du'as, there's some du'as that are written for different, you know, the different parts of wudu. That the du'a to be said with washing your hands and du'a. Those du'as are not actually authentically from hadith. 
Those are du'as are some ulama made, right? Now, why did they make them? Because of this, because they knew from Sahih that this is a moment that I'm going to put my, uh, when I'm going to apply the water to my face as the water drips, Allah is going to forgive me for sins. So they felt and they rolled on that emotion and they went further and they made du'as like that. Allah Ta'ala wash the sins from my eyes. They would make that du'a while washing their eyes, alright? And sometimes it happens that the du'a, and for example, those du'as are anonymous. They cannot be traced back to who made those du'as. Sometimes the du'as of a single alim or wali become so accepted by Allah and seem to capture the emotions of humans so much that they choose to knuckle that du'a, they choose to use that person's words to either create or to express a feeling in their heart. And that is absolutely permissible in Islam. The only problem will be is if the person starts saying that that du'a is sunnah. You can't call that du'a sunnah because it's not a du'a that says that Rasulullah himself made. So there's a word that the jurists made for particular of these things to give you an understanding why the jurists made these labels. So now what do we do with this? We have a du'a that people seem to be liking and using and expresses their feelings and it's completely permissible but it's not exactly sunnah. So what should we label this? So we used to label it mustahab, mustahab, beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and an act to make one beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? So those du'as of wudu are mustahab. Alright? That's not just permissible because of this hadith. Because there is a feeling mentioned in the Quran. And there's something there mentioned in the Quran hadith. It elevates it beyond just the permissible into what's called preferable. Alright? And the last thing I will mention to you about this uh, there are two things. Two things. Second to last is that some, again, I wouldn't even say martyrs in this case, some non-Muslims choose to critique hadith when these things are mentioned. Scientific facts, right? That oh, you know, the sun doesn't rise actually between the horns of Shaitan. Actually, science, science teaches us that the earth is uh, orbiting around the sun. The sun is stationary. That's absolutely correct. Nobody denies that. We all accept that. But the reality is that even absolute atheists all over the world love to sit on their porch and watch the sunrise. And still today, every world almanac of weather, they call it sunrise. Science says the sun isn't rising, the sun's not even moving. You still call it sunrise. Because it's a matter of perspective. From the human perspective on Earth, it appears that the sun rises and the sun sets. And today, even people accept that perspective and say, no, the Sunnah accepted that perspective at a time when science did not even discover uh, this reality that the sun was actually not rising. All right? Now that the sun rises between the horns of shaitan, Allah is actually possible. It's actually physically possible that Allah takes shaitan, puts him there, and makes the sun rise on top of him as a punishment from on this earth, as a forewarning to his burning in the fire of Jahannam. The sun is basically a ball of fire. It's quite possible. Why is it not possible? Allah knows best. Right? It could be very possible. That's enough. That's enough for you to accept the idea. Right? Science cannot disprove to you because science doesn't believe shit. It doesn't exist. Right? So science can't talk about these things. Science has no answer to this question. Does the sun rise between the horns of shaitan or not? Science is not our topic. Alright? And uh, the other thing is that the three prayer times that we're mentioning now. The question that comes is why did Allah SWT, why did the Muslim tell this person to go back? He's coming. He wants to accept Imam. Right? And he says, go back. And come back to me when we're ghalib. And the person must say, he's so sincere. And this is a big, good story for the Talib, Bayan Talib and Imam. 
He doesn't give up. He keeps track, keeps track, keeps track, keeps track, wasting none of them, then goes through the Nirmanar to take him up. Right? Now, first of all, you should know that this is unique. Otherwise, every other person who came to the Prophet in Makkah Mokarama asking to accept Imam from did accept his Imam. So this is an exception. Now, there must have been some exceptional, exceptional reason why the Prophet did this exceptional act. And we don't know what that is. You have to accept that. That we don't, the Hadith record captures the statements and actions of the Prophet it doesn't capture all of his motives for each and every one of those statements and actions. You have to accept that there was a motive, a reason why Sayyidina Rasulullah did this. And in your case, I won't take your Imam now. You go back. Might have been Allah Wala, that Allah Ta'ala inspired him with something about this person, that it's better for this person. Maybe he wouldn't have been able to handle the persecution now. Maybe he would have accepted Imam now and he wouldn't have been able to handle the early opposition, the opposition that the early Muslim community felt and he may have become an apostate. Allah Allah, what happened? But the point is that he ends up taking Imam. Alright? Now the last hadith on this topic, and this hadith is about hope in a very particular way. And it shows Imam al-Nawi, Imam al-Zawq as a muhaddith, that he brings this hadith last in this bab. Sayyidina Abu Musa al-Ashri narrates that Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, when Allah intends to show mercy upon a nation, he takes away their prophet before them and he makes him a forerunner and predecessor before them. And when he attempts to destroy a nation, he punishes them while their prophet is still alive and in their midst. He destroys them while he is alive and watching and he is pleased by their destruction and, and that prophet is pleased by their destruction because they rejected him and disobeyed his command. Alright, now there are incidents of this in the Qur'an of earlier Anbiya, such as Nuh alayhi salam, Al, Samud, etc, etc. That their ummas were destroyed in front of the Prophet of that ummah. In our case, no, right? Our ummah was not destroyed and Nabiya Karim Sassam actually was taken by Allah Ta'ala from the Sahaba at a time when Sahaba were Ghalib, after Fatih Makkah, after peace in the Arabian Peninsula was established, taken at a very good time, right? So that means <coughs> what <coughs> Allah Ta'ala wants to show mercy upon this Ummah. So the fact of when and how Nabi Karim Sallallahu passed away and what condition was the state of the Sahaba and the Ummah at the time means the Sahaba when he passed away is a sign of Allah Ta'ala wishing mercy for this Ummah. And Imam Nawir and Zawq is a Muhammad again because this is the hope because of Nabi Karim Sallallahu Hope in the mercy and forgiveness that the Bi'afirim, even his method and manner of passing away is a rahmah for this ummah. Even that, let alone, just imagine that that Nabi, whose method and manner of passing away is a rahmah for this ummah, then his method and manner of living his life, which is what hadith is, which is what darsi hadith is, which is what the Muhammadis are trying to encapsulate and teach, imagine how much that be a mercy. For this one. So this ends and completes Mahmud Ajah from Ghazal. And indeed, I think you would have felt when I told you last time is that when you do the hadith on fear, you feel no hope. And when you do the hadith on hope, you feel no fear. Right? And that's the nature of absolute pure fear and absolute pure hope. But I would again suggest 
that you can only truly be hopeful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if you are truly fearful of Him. And this is something I've seen and experienced. That when you become fearless, you actually become hopeless. Those who lose their fear or are insufficient in their fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're the ones who become hopeless. Alright? And this is, we, we want Allah Ta'ala to save us from both things. May Allah Ta'ala save us from fearlessness and may He save us from hopelessness. And hopelessness can be as crippling as fearlessness. And hopelessness can also sometimes drive a person into sin, just like fearlessness also can drive a person into sin. We take great hope in your mercy from the words of Nabi Akareem, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Let Nabi Akareem make us regular in those amal that will grant us greater hope. Make us stronger in that iman that is the foundation of hope. Grant us the sifat of iman, yakin and iman, ahwal of iman. Ya Rabbi Kareem, grant us the amal of iman. Grant us the amal of salah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Rabbi Kareem, grant us the fear that will save us from all bad deeds. Grant us the tawheed, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. And accept our iman in Nabi Kareem, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Let our iman in him translate into amal on his sunnah, ilm of his sunnah, amal on his sunnah, ish for his sunnah, Dawah to his sunnah, dawah from his sunnah. Ya Rabbi Kareem, never disconnect us from his sunnah, never disconnect us from his sirah. Ya Rabbi Kareem, before we pass away, give us tawfiq, just like you gave tawfiq to those sahabah ground to share all their hadith before they passed away. Give us tawfiq, Ya Rabbi, to learn all the hadith before we pass away, to practice all the hadith before we pass away, to do khidmat of hadith, to share hadith before we pass away. Ya Rabbi Kareem, get us nisbat with hadith, nisbat with all the muhaddithin, Nisbat with Sahabi Karam radiallahu ta'ala anhum ajma'in and Nisbat with Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam make us true ummati ya Rabb make us from the ummah ya Rabb make us a true loyal loving member of his ummah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ya Allah ya Nabi Kareem ya Allah on the day of judgment ya Rabb shower your forgiveness on us ya shower your forgiveness on us do not do your ma'akhida with us do not grab us with your breath and your might and your majesty, Ya Nabi Kareem, but instead envelop us with your soft and tender mercy, Ya Allah. Ya Nabi Kareem, after hearing all these ayahs and ahadith, we make tawbah on this night, we make istighfar on this night, we seek your forgiveness, Ya Nabi Kareem. There are many of us today, Ya Nabi Kareem, many, many days and months lie between us and our sin. We fail to make tawbah instantly, we fail to make tawbah soon. Ya Nabi Kareem, you sent you sent a reminder to us on this night. You guided us to this reminder on this night. Ya Kareem, we make true tawbah to you. We ask you forgiveness for each and every single sin that we ever did. The sin of the tongue, the sin of the eye, the sin of the mind, the sin of the brain, the sin of the heart. Ya Kareem, the sins that we did for ourselves, the sins that we did for the sake of others, the sins that we did to ourselves, the sins that we did to others, the sins that we did alone, the sins that we did with others. Ya Kareem, the sins that we did in the night that we should have repented of that very night, the sins that we did in the day that we failed to repent on that day. And Ya Rabbi Kareem asked that you give us tawfiq to make a wudu and to pray a salah in the beautiful way mentioned by Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that every wudu and every salah is a means of forgiveness for our sins. That every time we make wudu that you wipe away the sins of our mind, 
wipe away the sins of our eyes, you wipe away the sins of our tongue, that you wipe away the sins of our hands and our limbs and our organs. And in the beginning, that every time we pray a salah after such a wudu, you make us such that we are sinless like the day that our mother gave us birth, Ya Nabi Kareem. And I grant us wudu like that, salah like that, amal like that, istighfar like that. In the beginning, if ever we sin, let us always remember that you are the one who forgives and you are the one who punishes. And let us turn to you in Tawbah, knowing that you are Rahman and Rahim, and also ever knowing that you are Al Aziz Al Jambal, Al Intikam, Al Jalal, Al Ikram. Ya Allah, Ya Bikrim. And I ask that you accept all the du'as of all of the people in their hearts. As you give us Tawfiq to complete sometime in our life at least this one collection of hadith by Imam al Ta'ala, and let us be guided by the hadith. Let us do, let us be muhtadun through this hadith. Ya Rabbi Kareem, let our lives be dominated by this hadith. Ya Rabbi Kareem, if ever we understood something or explained something incorrectly, Ya Rabbi, grant us the good in it, protect us from the bad in it, increase us in our knowledge, increase us in our wisdom, increase us in our understanding. Ya Rabbi Kareem, make the unclear clear to us, make the confused clear to us.